We're going to be looking this morning at 2 Samuel chapter 3. And by now you should have noticed a change from our previous series in 2 Corinthians that in an Old Testament historical book we take a much larger section of the biblical text than in a Pauline epistle. And that is the case this morning. We have a text of a chapter that is 39 verses long. And we really must study this as one unit because it is a story. And there is something that God wants us to see in the story of this chapter. And so we will look closely at some of the the text and the verses. But there are some overarching themes that I want you to be able to see from God's Word. And so as we begin here now, you can get yourself comfortable and get your Bible out and get ready because it's going to take us a bit of time to read through the text. But it is the inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative Word of God. And so it deserves all of our attention. 2 Samuel 3, beginning at verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His first was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, Shephthiah, the son of Abitai. And the sixth, Ithriam of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf saying, To whom does this land belong? Make your covenant with me and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good. I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took from her, took her from her husband, Paltiel the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Barim. 
And Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. Then, and Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron that all Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go, and will gather all Israel to the Lord my king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So, Abner, so David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, and to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sarah. But David did not know about it. When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach, so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death at the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered, as one falls before the wicked you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. 
Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that You would open up Your Word to us this morning. That as we study it, we would see Your will. We would see Your purpose. And we would have great hope for our lives. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We often talk about having proper perspective on life and events. What is that? What do we mean by that? Is it that we should ignore the difficulties and trials of life? Or is it to think that our lives are perfect and that they couldn't be any better than they are? Some accuse Christians of believing that. And then they mock Christians and Christianity because it doesn't measure up to reality. But the Christian's viewpoint is not that everything is good in life. It's that God will always keep His promises. And He will bring about ultimate good out of so much that is bad. That's what 2 Samuel 3 is all about. God has made a promise, and He will fulfill it, in spite of all of the mess that we see. The key verse here is verse 18. By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Everything else in this chapter is a commentary on how faithful that promise of God is. When we see that, it helps us to see God's promises to us, no matter how circumstances seem to cloud them. So let's begin then by looking at the first episode in this chapter, in the first 11 verses and to see promise and providence. God's promise with providence. We start with a summary statement in verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. It summarizes all that's going on in chapters 2 and 3. There are seven years of conflict between Abner, the house of Saul, and David. One of those incidents in the war we saw two weeks ago in 2 Samuel 2, the battle at Gibeon. But our narrator here wants us to see the big picture, not isolated events. David is getting stronger and stronger. He's gone from being with a small band at Ziklag to settling in Hebron. And Judah had anointed him as their king and had supported him. And his position grew in strength, especially when compared to Abner and Ishbosheth. We can assume that this means that David's army increased in size, that he was well positioned against foreign tribes and nations and that Abner did not dare to attack him again. This is a general principle in the life of believers. As we wait on the Lord to fulfill His promise, and we live with an eye to the promise, we will find our spiritual strength growing. 
Now, sometimes we fail to see that because we associate the promise of God and the blessing of God with material benefits. We expect to see our pocketbooks increase. We expect to see our families be blessed. We expect to see our lives be healthy. And we are disturbed when these outward manifestations do not show blessing. But the truth of the matter is, is that God is at work in our lives making sure His promise. And most often that manifests itself in spiritual growth in our lives. As we grow closer to the Lord, as we walk following the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we are conformed into the image of our Savior. Now we have a description of this increase for David in verses 2 through 5. We're told of David's wives and of six sons who are born to him. Now we have to understand this description in light of the culture of the ancient Near East, Bible times people. Because you see, our culture often thinks of large families as a burden or as a problem. This was not so in David's day. They measured power by the number of wives and the number of children, especially sons, that a king had. Having many sons meant that the king had many trusted leaders and a secure line of succession. You may recall from history how difficult it was because Henry VIII could not secure a single male heir, and how England was troubled, and how he went through several wives trying to obtain a male heir. Now we also know that in David's day, that kings married wives for political reasons. We see this as well in verse 3. David married the daughter of the king of Geshur. Now, you remember that I told you when we started this book that geography is important in 2 Samuel. And so you need to know that the kingdom of Geshur is located in the north, just north of Abner and Ishbosheth's kingdom on the other side of the Jordan. And if you understand that, you will immediately know why David married the daughter of the king of Geshur. It's because he would then have an instant ally at the back door of Abner and Ishbosheth. This is a political alliance. This is something that we saw throughout human history, even up into the times of Europe. It's one of the reasons why Queen Elizabeth never married. Because nations were trying to have a prince or a king marry her so that they could form a political alliance. And she did not want to be beholden to another country in an alliance, and so she spurned suitors. This is how the world worked in the days of David. But not everything is perfect here. And that may surprise us, but it shouldn't. Because David is not perfect. I think often we over-idealize biblical characters. For us, David is the man after God's own heart. And maybe apart from that one incident with Bathsheba, he lived a perfect life following God in all his ways and doing everything that was right. Well, we're going to go through the book of 2 Samuel and we're going to see David's flaws, faults, and sins. And it's important for us because David was a man 
like us. He repented. He struggled. He sinned. When we look at David, we should see a sinner like us who struggles. And so the truth is, David should not have taken multiple wives. God's design for marriage is one man and one woman for life. That's what God established in the garden in Genesis chapter 2. That's what our Lord Jesus Christ confirmed in Matthew 19. But even beyond that, there was a specific prohibition in the law that David would have known prohibiting kings from having multiple wives. Deuteronomy 17, 17 forbids the king from taking to himself multiple wives. And all you need to do is look at the list of the names of David's sons to see the problems that have come from this. Having a family that's not really a cohesive family, but has rival factions within it. We think about Amnon, who attacked his half-sister. We think of Absalom, who killed Amnon and who rebelled against David. We think of Adonijah, who rebelled against David's chosen successor, Solomon. Now, David is merely copying what every other king did around him. They all had multiple wives and multiple children, and that's, as I said, how you shown your power. This should give us great warning about copying the culture around us. Now, we don't have polygamy yet, but we do have a similar kind of culture in which men and women take on multiple partners and, and multiple so-called spouses just without marriage. And this is chaos in our society. It makes life hard for children. It makes hard uh, financial situations. It makes difficulties for laws. It makes difficult relationships. Because in a real sense, our culture is doing what David's culture did. We need to be careful as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ not to copy what others do. And this goes beyond marriage. We are tempted all the time to copy the culture. To do something just because it's normal with people around us. But that's not right. We're Christians. We follow Jesus. We ought to be different. But the main thing that we are meant to see here is that David is being strengthened by the Lord. In, in contrast, Saul's house is marked by division and weakness. It's explicitly stated in verse 1, but it's also described in verses 6 through 11. Verse 6 tells us that even though Saul's house was growing weak, Abner was getting a greater and greater share of the power. He was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now, what does that mean? I think it means that Ishbosheth was just a puppet. He wasn't a real king. If you were in that kingdom and you wanted to know what the law was or what you should do, you didn't go talk to Ishbosheth. You went to see Abner. That's where the real power was. Abner's the big man in the kingdom. We assumed that before in chapter 2, but it's made explicit here in chapter 3. Abner is all about consolidating his power. And it's explicit here that Abner knows the promise of God to David. 
and he doesn't care at all. After all, he set up a son of Saul on the throne. But that was just for show. What Abner wanted was power and to be the big man. And verse 7 shows us a way in which he specifically did this. Ishbosheth calls Abner for having gone into one of Saul's concubines or wives. Now we might ask, what is going on here? Is this a romance story? Is it that Abner is setting aside convention because of his love for Rizpah? Not at all. This is purely a political maneuver. In the ancient Near East, a man would claim to succeed the king by taking over his harem. That's exactly what Absalom does with David's harem in chapter 16. So what we have here is a virtual revolt against Ishbosheth. Not just that he's a puppet controlled by Abner, but now Abner is going even further to say, I'm the one who should be king and succeed Saul. If Ishbosheth allows this to happen, he will be made a fool and everyone will know he's a puppet. So Ishbosheth confronts Abner. Now notice how Abner responds. He doesn't deny what he's doing. He doesn't try to explain it away. No, instead, he speaks about his loyalty to Saul. It's as if Abner looks at Ishbosheth and says, Listen, I made you, and I can break you. Abner likely sees the weakness of what is going on here, and he's glad for an opportunity to abandon Ishbosheth and decide with David. He sees that his kingdom is getting weaker and weaker, and he wants to hook up with the winning side. You might imagine it this way. Imagine that there's a football game going on, and one team is ahead of the other team 35 to nothing. And one of the players on the losing team walks up to the coach and says, Coach, why are you calling these plays? Shouldn't we maybe call something else to try to catch up? And the coach looks at his player and says, That's it. You're questioning me. I'm going to go join the other team. Now, that's awfully convenient, isn't it? Because you go from being down 35 to nothing to being up 35 to nothing. That's exactly what Abner's doing here. He's looking for an opportunity to consolidate his power and to be on the winning side. But even when Abner references God's promise to David in verse 9, he does it in a way that makes him responsible for it. Notice this. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. Abner's saying, I'll bring it about. I'm faster than God. I can take care of this. I don't need God. He's actually acting as if God is dependent on him. See how God, though, is fulfilling his promise here. God is using a pathetic Ishbosheth, a vain and power-hungry Abner, and the weak house of Saul, all of these providential events are in the hand of God, and He's using them as He wills. This is just as true for you and me today. Does that mean we should be glad when bad things happen, like 9-11 or COVID? No. But we must look for God at work 
even in the hard things of life, because God is always in control. That takes us to our second point, the promise and politics in verses 12 through 27. Abner sends messengers to David in verse 12. And what we see here is not a change in theological conviction on Abner's part. Abner has not gotten religion. No, he knew God's promise before, but it didn't matter to him. After all, if, he, if it had mattered to him, he wouldn't have set up a rival king to David. And it's even clear in the offer that Abner brings to David that there is nothing about the promise, nothing about God's will, nothing about David's right to the throne. It's all about Abner. He approaches David as an equal. He says, Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. This is pure politics. This is, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. This could be going on in the halls of Congress right now. Abner's trying to play, let's make a deal, so that he can be powerful and consolidated. Don't be fooled into thinking that Abner gets it here. And that's why he's coming to David. Ralph Davis puts it so well. He says, Abner only quotes scripture when it supports a pro-Abner move. That's the only time he wants to see the Bible. But God is at work here too. He's using the pride and the mercenary ambition of Abner to bring about his will. That's how God does things. He takes sin and he uses it for his own purposes. You need to understand that sin cannot defeat God. Now that doesn't make sin good or desirable. But it should remind us that in spite of all of the sin that we see around us, God is not powerless. He's not surprised. He's in control. And if we're not careful, we are tempted to look at the society and the culture around us and see all of the sin that besets us and to think somehow God is losing. That God is wringing His hands, that He doesn't know what to do. That He's lost control of the world. This text tells us that that's simply not true. Well, David responds to Abner, and he responds with a design. He sees an opportunity to end bloodshed, to end the weakness of all of Israel against the Philistines. He knows Israel is vulnerable. He knows that the twelve tribes are meant to be together. And also David knows the promise of God. And he sees God at work. So David is gentle here. He mentions that in verse 39. He is gentle with Abner. He doesn't insist on bloodshed. He doesn't insist on his own way and power and the humiliation of Abner and Ishbosheth. But he's also wise as a serpent. You remember that verse where Jesus tells us to be gentle as doves and wise as serpents? And you look at it and you say, what does that exactly mean? This is what it means. David is merciful and gentle, but at the same time, he asks for Michal. 
Now, Michal was the wife of David, the daughter of Saul. And so we wonder here, what is going on? Now, it is likely not a romance. It's probably been at least a decade since David has seen Michal. And we know from the text here that Saul actually gave her to another man to be his wife. So it's not like David is pining away or that he needs his long lost love. After all, she's going to be wife number seven. It's not like he needs a wife because he's lonely. But David is doing this for a reason. It's shrewd politics. What will happen is this will smooth out the transition between the kingdom of Saul's house uniting with the kingdom of David's house. Because David will have a wife who is descended from Saul. It will be a bringing together of these two kingdoms. And do you see how calculating David is? Who does he make the request of? In verse 14, he goes right to Ishbosheth. He bypasses Abner. It's as if he's saying to Abner, you know, you can talk tough, but you're not in control like you think you are. We're not equals. You're not a king. I'm going to the king. Now, Abner can see the handwriting that is on the wall here. And so he goes to talk to Israel, and he acknowledges in verse 17 that they know the promise of God too. And what we learn here is, is that the people in the kingdom of Ishbosheth are wanting to reunite with David. Abner stands in the way. His power may be growing in terms of relativism with Ishbosheth. The kingdom is slipping from his fingers. Abner doesn't have to convince them to go over to David. They're already ready before he even asks. And so Abner goes to David with a group of men and they settle the matter at a feast. And the description of what happens is important. When the Bible repeats things to us, it's because it wants us to notice them. And that's exactly what's happening here. It wants us to, knew, to know and to see that Abner went in peace. It's repeated three times in verse 21, 22, and then again in 23. Now what does that mean that Abner went in peace? It means that David had given Abner immunity. It means that David was ready for the fighting to be done. It means that David was forgiving Abner and Ishbosheth the rebellion that they had made for the sake of peace and reconciliation. Do you think this way in your life? Are you ready to give up your right to justice for peace and for a way forward? Can you forgive others so that you can walk in obedience with the Lord? That's what we have to do at times. Paul tells us that when he tells us that we are as much as it lies with you to live at peace with all men. Now this is announced to Joab when he comes back from a raid in verse 23. And Joab is furious. And at first, we may be blinded as to why he's so angry. We think about the death of his brother, Asahel. 
But if you think about it, Joab didn't pursue Abner after that battle. If he was so bent on vengeance, why didn't he? And after all, being angry about the death of your brother does not give Joab the right to speak to David the king the way he does in verses 24 and 25. He all but calls David a fool. What's going on here? Joab tricks Abner and he calls him back in verse 26. He sends messengers after Abner to bring him back. And I don't think it's a far stretch to believe that when the messengers come to Abner, they don't say, Joab wants to see you. They say, David wants to see you. And so, Abner comes back. Now, we might ask, why would he come? Why would he put himself in this situation? Because we see the end of the story, and it's not pretty. Abner comes because he had David's promise of safety. And then Joab murders Abner in the most foul way. He does it in the worst possible place, our narrator tells us. In the gate of the city where the judges of the city sat and dispensed justice. And worse than that, he does it in the worst possible city he could. Because Hebron, according to God's law, is a sanctuary city. So even if Abner had murdered his brother, and even if Joab had a case of vengeance, he could not execute it in Hebron. It's a sanctuary city. And on top of that, Joab has no right to vengeance. So what is Joab's motive here? I think this is important for us to see. As we look at Joab's life in the future, I think we find it. Jealousy and rivalry. We see virtually the same case play out in chapter 20, where David promises Amasa, the the commandship of the army. And you know what Joab does? He pulls a Joab on him. He gets up real close, and guess where he stabs him? Right in the stomach. It's, it's like a replay. And so, what we see here is Joab is being as political as Abner is. And this is true because when it came time for Solomon to succeed David, Joab sided with the rebel Adonijah. He's about consolidating his own power and making sure he's important. The thing you need to know about Abner and Joab is their position in the kingdom is more important than the kingdom itself. And that's crucial. There's more of Abner and Joab than we see at first glance. Joab is all about Joab. He's not driven by God's glory. So think about this in your own life. In your work for the kingdom of God, are you focused on Jesus' glory? Or do you have more concern at where your place is in the kingdom? Because that won't end well. God does not need you to bring about His glory. Beloved, you are not that important. Jesus is. And your blessing is to know and to serve that king. Now we come to our third point, promise 
and peace in verses 28 to 39 and a brief conclusion. We've seen that God uses providence and events to bring His promise to fulfillment. And God even uses the political and sinful ploys of men to do this also. This is a reminder to us that things are not always what we think they are. If you were an Israelite, what would you think about these events? Is it just an accident that Abner is killed in Hebron? Isn't that awfully convenient for David? This has the possibility of turning things upside down, making David the treacherous one. David trying to avoid this is likely the exact reason he took Abner's offer. And so our narrator takes pains to let us know that David is innocent. He writes it directly in verse 26. David did not know about this. And then David publicly asserts his innocence in verse 28. I am guiltless before the Lord of the blood of Abner the son of Ner. And then David goes so far as to curse Joab and his family in verse 29. Now, sometimes events occur in a way that sinful actions bring advantage to us. That's why we have to be very careful to maintain our own walk with the Lord. We have to be public and we have to be honest in our business dealings. We have to be honest in our relationships with others. And our lives need to be lived in such a way that others will find it easy to believe that we are innocent. And so David does his part not only to maintain his innocence, but to keep the peace. He responds to this event in a very particular and strong way. He could have been happy that Abner was out of the way. Joab, in one sense, did him a favor. He got rid of a rival. And Abner received justice for his rebellion. But that wasn't how David looked at this. David had been patiently waiting on God for seven years. He was willing to take God's providence as it came to him, to let God resolve the matter according to his own will. And now David makes clear that he wants peace and he's innocent. He publicly mourns for Abner. Abner's buried in a place of honor in Hebron where the patriarchs are buried. And Joab is publicly rebuked. And this is significant because Joab was the commander of the army. There was a significant risk that David took in potentially alienating him. So, what do we see from this story? It's a story full of plotting, scheming, Murder and politics. If we're honest about it, it's not the prettiest story, and we may even wonder, what's it doing in the Bible? God doesn't have to give us all of these gory details. I think we see two important things. First, that the Bible is unlike any other book. It tells it like it is. It is straightforward, unvarnished. It doesn't manipulate the truth to make the people in the Bible look better. It shows that the Bible is not afraid to tell the truth about who we are. And so because of that, you can trust the Bible. It's not manufactured. It's not false or manipulative. Second, this story gives us confidence 
about God's promises. Nothing can stop the promise of God. Even when it's most unlikely, God will bring His promise about. Are you a hundred years old? Well, God can give you a child to keep His promise. Are the people of God in exile cast out of the land? God will bring them back and establish them to keep His promise. Has the church today lost its way in heresy, division, and weakness? Jesus' kingdom is still certain today. And in your own life, in spite of all you struggle with, remember that God is not only at work, but that He is faithful. As you look around you, don't say, where is God today? He's right where He's always been, keeping His promise. There is no better time to trust the Lord than today. Let's pray.